Well, turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew. And as you are turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, I also want to pause and welcome some of our visitors here. We won't embarrass you, but we just want to say thank you for coming to worship with us today. However the Lord led you to us, we are grateful. And uh, I've asked you to fill out a visitor's card, uh, and I hope that you've dropped that in offering plate or give it to me before you leave. We're glad that you guys are here. Amen? Please make yourselves at home. As we continue through the Gospel of Matthew, we have finished out Matthew chapter 9 last week, but now we're going into Matthew chapter 10. And I want us to today read the final two verses of Matthew chapter 9 as we begin chapter 10 because these verses are great segues between these chapters. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. And beginning in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Father God, we do pause and thank you for your word. And even though we have just read what many may consider an insignificant passage, the naming of the twelve apostles that Jesus himself called to ministry is not insignificant. God, the words of your Son call us to preach the gospel, to pray for the laborers of the harvest, to pray to the God of the harvest that you would send forth laborers to gather in lost souls for the kingdom. Father, these 12 that Jesus set aside became the great preachers that established the church And so, Father, today I pray through the reading of your word and through the preaching of your word that you would speak to each and every one of us here. Where do we stand in that calling of proclaiming the gospel? You have called every believer, every disciple is called to proclaim and preach the gospel. Father, where are we in that calling? Are we faithful? Are we listening? Are we obeying? Are we going? And Father, through the example of your 12 apostles, I pray today that you would inspire us, that you would call us, that you would challenge us, and meet us exactly where we are today. Let this time be for your glory, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please have a seat. God bless you guys. This scene of Matthew's gospel, these last two verses of chapter 9, We spoke on these last week, but I didn't feel like I gave enough attention to verses 37 to 38. And actually, ironically, Wednesday night, this was one of the focal passages in the Missions Bible Study Wednesday night, unknowns to me. It was 
It was an amazing, it's a classic passage of Scripture that we read when we talk about missions, right? Jesus, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus is calling all of his disciples, and that's you and me if we are Christians. To what? Verse 37. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Jesus is speaking these words to the great multitudes of disciples that are nearby, and he is setting the stage here for a new phase here in Matthew 10 where he's going to send out his 12 apostles in the beginning stages of their training as the 12. Y'all ready for this kind of a journey? As we go over chapter 10 over the next several weeks, this, these will be weeks of sermons as we look at Matthew 10 where Jesus will be teaching us through Matthew's gospel what he taught the 12 in preparation for ministry in the kingdom. And it's sermons, and this is actually a text of Scripture that people don't like to read very much because it's not very fun. If you had a job interview and the employer, the boss, said, I want to hire you, but let me tell you about the job. You're going to get shot. You're going to have people hate you and spit on you. You're going to go out and people are going to want to not only take your job, they're going to take your house. They may even kill your family. Are you ready for the job? You ready to start tomorrow? How many of y'all would respond to that kind of a job interview? Matthew chapter 10 is going to set the stage for what it, what it takes, what the cost is, what the devotion looks like for the disciples of Christ, the Christians of the church, to go and minister to a lost and fallen world what it is to love Jesus Christ, to be saved and redeemed through his blood, and to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. And it's not going to be a fun ride. It's going to be a serious ride. But at the same time, it's all worth it. Amen? Amen. Amen. So this section of Matthew's gospel, verses 37 through 38 of chapter 9, is a segue between the previous chapters, really of chapters 8 and 9, that were focused on the healing miracles of Jesus. And as this now transitions into chapter 10, which will focus on the mission of the 12 apostles as they go and preach the gospel to the villages and cities of Galilee, but also as they preach the gospel, they too will be given authority to conduct miracles, to have healings, to cast out demons as a witness to the kingdom of heaven a special calling for the 12. And we're going to see this in chapter 10 over the next several weeks, what these signs and wonders are. Just like in chapters 8 and 9, as Jesus was healing and as he was casting out demons, what was the purpose of those miracles? Y'all remember? It was to point to the kingdom of heaven, to show a lost and fallen world that the kingdom of heaven was present. Amen? Not as a health and wealth gospel message of come get your miracle now. Instead, it was something greater. And it all pointed, all of the healing, all of the demon possession that was cast out, all of that was pointing to something bigger. The biggest miracle of all is the fact that a loving 
holy and righteous God steps into fallen creation to redeem us and to save us from our sin. That's what all miracles point to. And that's what we see in the Gospels. So let's take a look here at this scene. Let's look here um, as we've seen verses 37 and 38 of Matthew 9. There is a great work to be done. Imagine as you read verses 37 and 39 of chapter 9. Imagine being in an open field, a large field. There's a harvest that is ready to be picked. Anybody here ever worked tobacco as a kid? Y'all didn't do tobacco in Middle Tennessee? I grew up in East Tennessee. I grew up in the Southern Appalachians. Y'all from Johnson City, right? Okay. A bunch of tobacco still growing up there. Up in the mountains, you can't grow nothing that's worth anything because the hills, the ground is too rocky by far, right? Remember that song, Rocky Top? That's a joke. Nobody's laughing at that one, but you see where we're going. You grew tobacco, you either, you grew tobacco, you either grew corn and made whiskey out of it or you grew tobacco. Tobacco was a livelihood. I grew tobacco with my grandfather as a kid. You imagine going into a field of tobacco as a 12-year-old boy and you were overwhelmed with the work that was in front of you. Imagine any kind of field where there's a harvest ready to come in. The crops are ripe. They're ready to be brought into the storehouses. But here's the thing. Imagine this field, whether it be whatever it is, whether it be grain, whether it be corn, whether it be whatever it is you're bringing in, there's only one farm worker in the entire field. That's the imagery that Jesus is placing here in verses 37 and 38. Imagine the emptiness of that field in comparison to the one person who's out there in the field working to bring in the crops of the entire field. And guess what happens if you don't get all of the crops in? They go bad. And you've lost your money. All that time, effort, and work gone. But only one person is out there in that field willing to do it. It's overwhelming. Now imagine another scene, if you're not in the agricultural mindset, imagine in a more modern mindset, imagine being in a warehouse full of goods that need to be inventoried or processed for shipment. Imagine being the only employee at the Amazon distribution center down here in Lebanon. Can you imagine being the only one in that warehouse to do everything that's necessary? You understand what Jesus is saying here? The laborers are few, and the harvest is great. In verse 38, Jesus calls his disciples to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Why do you pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest? Because the harvest is daunting. The harvest is impossible. And so anything that we are called to do by Christ in Scripture requires prayer because we are called to a daunting task. We are called to the task of proclaiming the gospel in a way that is impossible on our own. And here Jesus is saying, pray to the Lord of the harvest. What? To send forth workers for this impossible task. In other words, even in preaching the gospel, even in evangelism, even in missions, Jesus reminds us this is not something of our own doing. This is something that even more so we are dependent upon Christ. We're dependent upon the Lord because it is impossible for us to do. And Jesus is calling his disciples to this. 
It's one thing to think about missions and evangelism. In the church, we do this, and rightly so. The Southern Baptist Convention, is only, it only exists because we, there are churches around the country that gather together to collect finances and resources to do one thing, and that's to send out missionaries and preachers of the gospel. That's why the Southern Baptist Convention exists. Now, there's some problems. Always, there always has been problems in the Southern Baptist Convention. It's never been a nice, pleasant smooth thing. That's what happens when you get all of these independent churches, independent autonomous churches together. It's going to be kind of messy, but that's what it's about. But think about this. I think what Jesus is showing us here too when he's saying, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest here in verse 38. I think he is showing us a greater clarity for the sovereignty of God in the work of evangelism, and in the work of preaching the gospel. If we are called to pray to the God of the harvest, we are, pray, we are called to pray to the sovereign God who calls us to this preaching, who calls us to this ministry, who calls us to the proclamation of the gospel. Because the gospel is beyond us anyway. We cannot save ourselves. It is through the blood of Christ and Christ alone that we have any hope. And so we are encouraged to point to him and to depend on him and to lean on him, even in proclaiming the gospel. Amen? To bring in the harvest of souls to the kingdom of heaven requires preachers of the gospel. Now, everyone in this room is sitting here, but I'm not a preacher. That's your job. Y'all are pointing to me. That's your job, Brian. You preach. No, it's not. It's your job to preach. My job is to walk us through the scriptures to encourage us all by pointing to the Word of God and to be inspired by what God tells us and to allow God's Holy Spirit through His Word to motivate you to go and preach the gospel. That's not my job. That's your job. And here's what Jesus is saying. We are called to bring in harvest of souls. That's what the harvest is, to harvest souls for the kingdom of heaven. And this requires preachers of the gospel, laborers who will unapologetically witness to the saving lordship of Jesus Christ. Here's what Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15 says. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, Paul, in in Romans chapter 10, as he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, he's citing Isaiah chapter 52, but also Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. The calling of the Old Testament prophets who say how beautiful it is, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is a beautiful calling. But it's a scary calling. And, 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 and as many of us in the church hear these words, we say, oh, that's not for me. I'm not called to go and preach the gospel. I'm called to stay home and pray. That's what Jesus says, pray for laborers, doesn't he? But let me caution you here. As Jesus calls us to pray for laborers of the harvest, if our response to that is, well, I'm called to pray, but I'm not called to go, I want to say that that is actually a hypocritical attitude because every Christian is called to go. Now, you may just be called to go next door to your neighbor. 
How many of us know the names of our neighbors? How many of us even know our neighbors? <clears throat> we don't do that anymore because we don't have front porches. We don't have streets where people play out in the street anymore. Everybody stays in their little home watching Netflix and playing video games. Amen? We don't even know our neighbors anymore. We are called to go. We may be called. Actually, all of us are called to go wherever God says. And if God says go, we go. And if that means going to the farthest end of the world where nobody has ever heard the name of Jesus Christ before, you may be the only one that they will ever hear. And if you refuse to go, but I'm just going to stay home and pray. As you pray, God may say, I want you to go. Oh, no, God, I'm just called to pray. I'm not, I'm not called to. If we tell God no, it's because we're telling him no based on something that he's telling us. If you feel in your spirit, no, I'm not going to go, God, you are not obeying the scriptures. God calls, we go. All disciples, period. Amen? Some of y'all are getting nervous. Wait till we get to the disciples. Just wait a minute here, okay? Y'all ready? Let's jump down to Matthew chapter 10. Now Jesus calls out 12 special men from among the many hundreds of disciples who must have been here listening to him speak. These 12 men are set aside as special disciples, special apostles who would walk close with Jesus for the remainder of his earthly ministry. Let's look here at verses 1 through 4 of Matthew chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now notice here in verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles are these. Notice from, chap from verse 1 to verse 2, Matthew now shifts the language from calling 12 disciples to now naming 12 apostles. That is not insignificant. Because these 12 men, these names I'm getting ready to read, were actually called out as special disciples. They were given the title and the authority of apostle that we'll unpack here in a minute. And they were called to a special ministry apart from and above standard disciples of Christ. And he, Verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These are 12 men called out by name in all four of the Gospels. And these men are set apart. They are set apart. They are called specifically by Jesus to learn from him. Now notice at this point of Jesus' ministry, all four Gospels are in agreement on this, that at this point of Jesus calling the 12 apostles is about a year to year and a half into Jesus' three-year ministry. There was a three-year time span from the time that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist to the point of his death and resurrection. This is about the halfway point of Jesus' ministry. Jesus ministered primarily alone for the first year to year and a half of his ministry. And about midway, he calls these 12 apostles who for the remainder of Jesus' ministry will get special training at the feet of Jesus himself. Wow. <laughs> Jesus is watching these disciples, watching those who are following him, watching those who are learning from him, and he discerns that these 12 men 
are the 12 men that He will call to a special role of leadership and to a special role of teaching and ministry after He departs. And before they can do that, Jesus knows I've got to train these men because they are raw clay, pretty rough around the edges. Amen? And we'll get into some of that a little bit today and a little bit more in the next few weeks. But Jesus knows that these men need to be trained, and this is the beginning of their training, to follow after Christ, to be with him in a special way, to learn things that no one else will learn for the purpose of establishing the church. Amen? There are two lessons that these men are going to learn. They're going to learn through both living with Jesus every single day. They're going to learn from Jesus by watching him and witnessing everything he does. And they're going to learn by special lessons that Jesus will have with each and every one of them along the way. So Jesus calls out these 12 who had been among the many disciples. And and, and there's this special authority granted to these men that's not granted necessarily to all of his disciples. These 12 are granted special status because these 12 are going to go out to the cities and villages of Galilee in chapter 10, to, and they're going to begin to learn how to preach the gospel. That's what Jesus is doing here in chapter 10. He's setting up these 12 apostles to learn how to preach, to learn how to be missionaries, to learn how to be leaders. That's what he's doing here. He's sending out in chapter 10 a, a different level of commission than what he will do in Matthew 28. So this commissioning in chapter 10 is a specific mission to certain villages in the area. But at the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 28, there's a grand commission to all to go forth and preach the gospel. See what we're doing here? So Matthew 10 is a unique chapter that's going to be focused on training, on how to be an evangelist, how to be a missionary. But these 12 are called out by Jesus for a special purpose. Now, Mark's gospel helps us understand a little bit more about what they're doing. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 15 says this, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So the commissioning era of an apostle is unique. It's much different than the calling of a disciple, but they both have some common attributes. Let's figure out what these are. An apostle, this word that we have translated here, apostle, is used in the Gospels primarily for the twelve. Now, later in the New Testament, as Paul is called to his apostleship, same idea applies to him. But these twelve are called out and they're sent out by Jesus to do two things. One, to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And two, to demonstrate his presence by performing signs and wonders. They are granted a specific level of authority to also perform signs and wonders, miracles, just like Jesus did. Why? Because Jesus is training them. And they are establishing something that is new. The kingdom of heaven. Fallen humanity had never seen anything like this to this level. And the signs and wonders were a part of that ministry. Now, in contrast to the apostleship, there are disciples. Now, often we'll call these 12 the 12 disciples, but they are actually referred to in Scripture 
as apostles, but they are also disciples, right? You and I are disciples. Disciples of Jesus are students of Jesus, and we're not necessarily set apart for a special role in leadership or any special authority of an apostle, but this word here for disciple is someone who is a student, much like the ancient tradition of a a relationship between a master teacher and a student. And, and the, relate, that the way they used to do education in Jesus' day and in, in the ancient days is much different than they do now. In other words, what is, what is education like today? Oh, let's just empower the student to be independent and who they want to be. Let's let them learn about 2 plus 2 equals 4 on their own. How can they figure that out? That's not the way they used to do it back then. When you learned in the ancient world, you were a disciple of a master. You were committed and loyal to the master. There was a relationship between a master and a teacher to the point that the student would go and live with the master and share accommodations and food. And they would learn from experience by observing the master, but they would also have special lessons one-on-one with the master. That's what these 12 were called to. They would live with Jesus and share his food and share his accommodations. They would learn by watching Jesus live and teach. They would also receive special teaching from Jesus. Can I also argue special understanding and enlightenment of the gospel and of the scriptures that Jesus would show them? And we see that later as he's teaching the parables to them. Okay, so they're getting special attention from Jesus. They're going to be faced with the same thing that Jesus is faced with. When we look here at chapter 10, these disciples are being cautioned and trained. You will experience the same thing I experienced, Jesus says. I will be rejected when I preach the gospel. So will you. (laughs) There will be some that will receive the, the message of the gospel, and some will also receive your word. So they're going to watch both, okay? Now, Matthew chapter 10 shows us how Jesus prepares these 12 for ministry, okay? Verses 5 through 15, just a quick summary, because this is going to be the summary of the sermons for the next several weeks. There is a specific mission to the lost sheep of Israel. At this point, they are not called to go out to the Gentiles yet. That's coming. But this particular mission is to the lost sheep of Israel. Next, in verses 5 through 15, we also see that Jesus teaches them that this call to ministry, this call to preaching, there will be no financial profit in this work. You're not going to come away rich, okay? He encourages them and challenges them. You're going to live simply, and you're going to be dependent upon the Lord for all of your needs. In other words, don't take anything with you. We'll get to that here next week. And this is where it comes with the modern American church when it comes to mission work. The number one thing I always struggle with when I take a group on a mission trip is you've got too many suitcases. Go down to one. Or better yet, don't take any. Amen? Y'all are staring at me like, that's impossible. Wait till we get to uh, verses 5 through 15 next week. I'm going to rip. The scriptures will really crush your toes, okay? Nextly, he tells them in verses 16 through 25 to expect persecution. You're living among wolves, okay? You're going to be persecuted. Expect it. Next, he tells them to overcome the fear of the persecution. I don't know about you, but if I'm persecuted and I've got somebody attacking me, there may be a level of fear there. And Jesus is saying, I'm sending you out amongst the wolves. You will be persecuted. I'm challenging you, and I will empower you 
to overcome the fear of this. That's part of the ministry. And as you overcome the fear, you're going to stand out as light in the darkness. That's verses 26 through 33. And lastly, he says, be bold and on offense like a soldier in battle. In other words, you're not only going to go into a spiritual battle here, verses 34 through 39, you're also going to sacrifice like a soldier. You're going to sacrifice your family. You're going to sacrifice all that you have for the ministry and for the gospel. And that's what he's preparing them for. Now, let's look here at verses 2 through 4 as we now listen to the names of the 12. These 12 are the ones who are called to what we just talked about, to a specific mission, to a hard persecution, to fear, to overcoming that to be bold and offensive like a soldier, and to sacrifice. This is what these men are called to. So let's understand who these 12 are. Verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, who are these 12? When we come to the list of the 12 apostles in the Gospels, many of us may skip over it. It's kind of like the genealogies that we skip over in the beginning of Matthew. Okay? There's a lot there. (laughs) Okay? Let's understand who these 12 men are, and I want to close out our time here with this. Because in understanding who these 12 men are and what their ministry looked like will help us understand the calling that Jesus is calling them to. And if we understand what these 12 men were called to, we're also going to understand what it is that we as Christians in the church are called to. We're not necessarily called to the level and authority of an apostle. I think the age of the apostles is over. That was over at the end of, of uh, the first church, or first century of the church. Well, actually, when, when the canon of Scripture was completed, that's when the age of the apostles ended. We don't have that anymore. But we have to understand that these 12 were called to a ministry that established the church, and their lives were lives of difficulty and hardship. We don't have much biblical account of that other than the book of Acts, and some of the apostles are mentioned there and some of their martyrdom and some of their struggles. But church history is one of the ways that we can look at what many of these men faced and how they ended their ministry and how they ended their lives. Let's take here the list here. We're going to go down it one by one, and we're going to close with this. Peter, here in verse 2, is always listed first when we list the, gospel, when we list the, the apostles in the Gospels. Peter's always mentioned first. That implies a lot of things, okay? Um, he stood out amongst the 12. And that's, that's, a, that's an interesting thing because these 12 were all called in unique ways by Jesus. Every one of these men are unique, and we're going to see how unique they are. But these 12 were taught directly. These were the only 12 in human history. I want to emphasize this. They were the only 12 men in human history who were taught directly by the incarnate God himself. That right there elevates these 12 men to a status that none of us will ever achieve. Amen? They lived with them constantly. They were unique in that their calling shows that they were obviously unqualified. Can we say amen? (laughs) No education, very rough around the edges. I would say redneck hillbilly, bar fighting type of guys. And God calls them and changes them 
and elevates them to a unique role in the church. You see that? They were all martyred. They were called to a special mission. And their lives showed a pure sacrifice to the gospel ministry and to the preaching of that gospel. Peter here is unique. Jesus saw the raw material in Peter that was necessary to develop a leader. Peter was seen as the leader of the twelve. Doesn't mean that he had complete control of the twelve because they were all like cats, right? But he was seen as the leader of the twelve. And the single greatest qualification in Peter was that he was constantly willing to ask Jesus questions. Every time you see Peter interacting with Jesus in the gospel, he's asking Jesus questions. That's a unique qualification of a leader, right? Uh, Many of these questions, honestly, were immature, (laughs) and many of these questions were, uh, were superficial, but they were still genuine. Peter desired to learn. But we also know that Peter, he proclaimed the gospel all throughout the Roman Empire. We know that through his two epistles, first and second Peter, that he encouraged the diaspora of the church. In other words, the scattering and the spreading of the church under persecution was Peter encouraged them through his, through his letters. And he said, endure the suffering. As you endure the suffering, there will be a witness of the gospel and a witness of our Savior that no one can explain. Amen? That's what Peter does. But how do we know about Peter and his ministry? At the end of his ministry, we know that, well, first of all, let me back up. All of these men were martyred. All of them faced a death at the hands of someone else, other than John the Revelator, but then you could also argue he was martyred because of his, uh, his isolation. He was cast into his exile. He wasn't necessarily beheaded or anything, but he was cast into exile. But they were all martyred. Peter was no exception. Here's what we know about Peter's martyrdom. He died a cruel death, and this is what church history tells us. Many of the ancient historians have recorded these things, and much of it is, you know, probably speculation, but some of it's based in truth. But here's what we do know. Peter died a cruel death. He uh, was crucified at the hands of the Roman emperor Nero, and he was forced to witness the crucifixion of his own wife. And he stood at the foot of that cross where his wife was dying. Now, husbands, listen to this. His wife was dying on a cross for Jesus because of the gospel. And her husband, Peter, was standing at the base of that cross, crying out to her as she was dying. And here's what he said. Here's what church tradition says. As he stood at the base of her cross, he encouraged her with these words over and over again. He said, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Husbands, how many of you will do this for your wife? Remember the Lord as she's dying on the cross. Can you imagine as a husband watching that cruelty? That's worse than your own crucifixion. Yet in the midst of that, he's encouraging her, remember the Lord. And then as as she goes, his time comes. And tradition says that he requested to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to be crucified the same way that his Savior died. That's church tradition. I think it's true. Amen. Now let's look at the next man on the list after Peter. Peter's younger brother, Andrew. 
Now, Andrew, we, he was introduced here in John chapter 1. We see more about Andrew in John chapter 1. But we know that Simon Peter comes to Jesus because his brother Andrew introduces him. Come, let me show you who this man is, this man from Nazareth. So it was Andrew who introduced Peter uh, to Jesus. Andrew and Peter were part of the inner four. There was an inner group of four within the twelve. And so it was uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John. They were the inner four, this inner circle. Now, what do we know about Andrew? Andrew's ministry... He has this reputation of of having a personal and relational ministry. In other words, his ministry was more one-on-one discipleship. So you want a a biblical uh, encouragement for that type of ministry? Right here we have it. Andrew was the one who was focused on the personal relationship with people. He focused on the individual. Now, we don't know much about Andrew in the Gospels. He's not mentioned that many other times. But we do know this, that church history tells us that Andrew took the gospel north after Jesus' resurrection. And we have record that he went as far as ancient Scythia, which is part of modern-day Russia. That's how far north he went. Now, Andrew is known as the patron saint of Russia. He's also known as the patron saint of Scotland. So we have pretty strong evidence that he carried the gospel that far. Now, Andrew's martyrdom actually came in southern Greece in a town of Achaia near Athens. He, here's the story. Andrew led the wife of a provincial Roman governor to Christ. He led a wife of a, of a, a bureaucrat to Christ. And this Roman governor was so furious that he demanded his wife recant and refuse the gospel. And when she refused to do that, he had Andrew crucified. And Andrew hung on this X-shaped cross for two days. We know this from records, that he hung on the cross for two days. And as he hung on the cross for two days, as passers-by were walking by him, he was known from the cross to cry out to these people passing by to turn to Christ for salvation, even as he hung on the cross. That's Andrew the personal one-on-one plea for people to come to Christ, even on his crucifixion. See that? Next, we have James, the son of Zebedee. He's also one of the inner four. James, the son of Zebedee, was the first of the twelve to be martyred, and we know this in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. It says, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, which meant he was beheaded. Now, here's the story of James's beheading. This is an interesting story. James had a zeal for Christ. Remember, he was known as uh, one of the sons of Zebedee, right? One of the sons of thunder. And he was known for being zealous for Christ. He was also seen as the second in order of leadership of the twelve. So Peter would have been number one. James, the son of Zebedee, would have been seen as number two. Church history tells us that the one who was leading James to his execution that we read about in Acts chapter 12, the one who was walking James to his execution was so moved by the compassion and the zealousness of James for Christ that this man too confessed his belief in Christ for salvation and they were beheaded together. 
So much so that at the point that this guard who is taking James to his death turned to James and asks him for forgiveness. And James kisses him on the forehead and says, peace be with you. And they both died for the gospel together. Amen? Now we come to John, the son of Zebedee. He was also one of the sons of thunder. Um, He was seen by Jesus as the beloved disciple. We know him from his gospel that he wrote, the gospel of John. We know him from his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We know him from the book of Revelation. And John was the last of the 12 to die. We know that he lived out his days in exile on the island of Patmos, where Revelation was actually, the vision was given and he wrote it out. Um, We also know that John's ministry, he, he eventually becomes the bishop of the church in Ephesus, where the church flourished under his leadership, okay? Um, The gospel account, everything that he wrote, all of his ministry, all of his theology kind of shaped in his life. John was known as the apostle of love, okay? When you look at the difference between Paul's theology and John's theology, John was known as the uh, the theologian of love. Um, He was a witness of Christ to the very end, last one to die. Next, we come to Philip, and we want to move through these. Philip. He was a Jewish disciple, but he, uh, he, we, we only have his Greek name. We don't have his Jewish name because he was most likely from a group called the Hellenists, a group of Jews that were so influenced by Greek culture that they lived like Greeks. And so the only name we have here is the Greek name Philip. Now, John's gospel alone gives us what little knowledge we have of Philip. He's not, he's not, he wasn't a fisherman. He was known as a bean counter. He was one of these personalities that had to have all of the details right. Anybody like that? This was Philip, okay? You see how Jesus is calling together a wide diversity of people for the ministry? This was Philip, okay? He was someone who loved the process, the order of things. He was also perhaps a disciple of John the Baptist, even out in the wilderness. That's how far back he goes, The only thing we know about uh, Philip, really, he was called by Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 43. It says, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. There was something about Philip that Jesus went to find him. Come, follow me. I want you to be with me. Now, church tradition tells us that Philip preached widely in what is now current modern-day Turkey and Central Asia. In the Bible, it's called Asia Minor. That's where his ministry went. And he was stoned to death in the city of Heliopolis eight years after James was was martyred. So we know about his death. He was stoned to death. Next, we have Bartholomew, who is also known as Nathaniel. It's Matthew's gospel that refers to him as Bartholomew, but we see the other accounts in John chapter 1 where Jesus is calling him Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel's character, he comes across as the disciple who is sincere. He comes across as the one who was genuine. In John chapter 1, verse 47, Jesus commends commends Nathanael. He says, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. That's that's Jesus' words about Nathanael. So Nathanael was was genuine. Now, early church history tells us that Nathanael or Bartholomew took the gospel to Persia and off on to India. That's how far his ministry went. One tradition said that he was martyred by being tied in a sack and thrown into the sea to drown. Now, another account says that he was crucified. So again, 
Much of this church history is not accurate. We don't know for certain, but we have different accounts for Nathaniel. But here's one thing that we know about. If, Matt, if Bartholomew or Nathaniel was mentioned here, however he was martyred, he was preaching the gospel to the end. That's what we know about him. Next, we'll look at Thomas. Everybody knows about doubting Thomas, right? Thomas, who is also called Didymus or the twin, this apostle is known for his great doubt in John chapter 20. As Jesus is resurrected, this was the doubting Thomas who says, I will believe it when I see it, right? But here's what we know about Thomas. Church history tells us that Thomas carried the gospel to India. We actually know there is a hill, a small hill near the city of Chennai, India, where it is said that Thomas is buried. Christians who were there actually count this space, this spot where Thomas was buried. He carried the gospel to India, doubting Thomas. Wow. Matthew, the tax collector, is next. And we know about Matthew. He's the one who is writing this gospel. He's the most notorious sinner amongst the 12. Think about this. No one's life is as low as a tax collector. He was the worst one of them all. But Matthew writes this gospel, and we know that he becomes a great preacher. Matthew's ministry was focused primarily to the Jewish, to the Jews, both in Israel and in the diaspora and spread abroad. Church tradition says that Matthew was burned at the stake for his gospel witness. James, the son of Alphaeus, is next. Now, nowhere in Scripture is this particular James mentioned other than in the listing of the names of the twelve. We don't know much more about him. This James is probably the most obscure one of the twelve. He could have been Matthew's brother. Some people speculate that. Uh, the son of Alphaeus. There's possibility he might have been Matthew's brother. Or some people speculate that this James could have been Jesus' cousin. Again, church historians and theologians are not certain on this. But Scripture and church history are, I mean, even though they're silent, here's what we know. The son, that James, the son of Alphaeus, would have been a mighty preacher. If he wasn't, he wouldn't have been listed here. Amen? Now we come to the final ones. These are the zealots. These are the ones that were the most troublemakers amongst the twelve. Uh, we have Thaddeus, who is also known as Judas, the son of James, or Judas, not the Iscariot. Okay? Um, the name Thaddeus actually implies, can actually be translated, a mama's boy. He was probably one of the meekest ones of the bunch. He was probably the one who was the most coddled. We, that's what's implied here. Uh, but it also implies that he had a tender heart, literally the heart of a child. What an apostle. Can you imagine that? Church tradition says that he took the gospel north uh, to the region of Asia Minor and Turkey. Uh, many accounts, here's what I said, many accounts say that he healed a king of a, a territory called Edessia. And many of the ancient records of that area, the, the historical records of this kingdom, actually show that he was there, and they tell of the miraculous healing. Um, we don't know much more about his death other than this, that he was clubbed to death for the faith. He was clubbed to death for the faith. Simon the Zealot. This Simon was a part of a political movement called the Zealots. Now, I think Simon the Zealot is someone that we can learn from in our politically charged culture that we have today. Christians in the church have become like Simon the Zealot. They have allowed their political fervor to define who they are. And this could be good or it could be bad. 
Because we have Simon the Zealot here, and then we have Judas Iscariot. These last two, they were both zealots. They were political zealots. Well, who were the zealots? They were extremists. They were much like the Pharisees, but their focus was on political power rather than theological power. I want to close with these two examples for this reason. Church history tells us that Simon the Zealot or Simon the Canaanite, even though he was a political zealot, and he would have been one out there arguing for a political takeover of the kingdom, that the Messiah was coming militarily to overthrow the Romans. His heart was so radically changed by Christ that his preaching is recorded as one that was effective. Even that passion came through in his preaching and he was loyal to Christ to the end, even to his martyrdom. He was martyred for his preaching, but we don't know the exact method. The opposite of the zealot would be Judas Iscariot. We know how his end came. So we can take political, zealous passion one of two ways. It can be like Simon the Canaanite, Simon, also known as Simon the Zealot, where he, Jesus shaped within him a passion for preaching the gospel. Or that political, zealous attitude can poison us to the point like Judas Iscariot did, and we know his end. So why, why did I go through this long list of 12? Because we need to understand this, that these 12 men are listed by name in Scripture in more than one location. That's not insignificant. But Jesus is calling these 12 men, these 12 apostles, to a special ministry. He's giving them authority to establish the church. But how do they establish the church? Not by military power, not by force. They changed the world because they were loyal to the Christ. They were genuine to Christ. He genuinely poured into them and made them the preachers that they became. They were not afraid to preach the gospel. They carried the gospel to their deaths. Their deaths, all 12 of them, their deaths were directly the result of preaching the gospel. Amen? How many of us in this room are willing to be so uncomfortable and passionate in preaching the gospel that if necessary, we will preach the gospel even as our enemies are taking our lives. That's the history of the church. Yet we are complacent and we are comfortable. Jesus calls all of his disciples to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into the harvest. And I will add to this, yes, we pray earnestly for the Lord to send out laborers into his harvest, and the Lord is sending you out into the harvest. He's sending me out into the field of the harvest. Are you willing to do it, even if it means doing it alone? How many of us are willing to take on a job when no one else will and you're the only one doing it? Then how many of us complain about it? 
The calling of Christ for us today is this. The preaching of the gospel is demanded and expected. It doesn't mean that you have to get up behind a pulpit and preach an expository sermon. But it does mean that you preach the gospel through your life, through your words, through your actions. You are genuine and true to yourself. I heard one Christian recently tell me that what radically changed them for their passion for Christ was they had been a Christian for many years and their college roommate found out that they were a Christian and their college roommate said, I never knew it. Where are you in the, har- in the har- harvest of the souls for the kingdom? It starts with you. It starts with your passion for Christ. If you have a passion for Christ, if Christ is genuinely in you, and if Christ is genuinely changing you, and if Christ is genuinely growing you, He has given you everything you need to proclaim the gospel. It's not about us anyway. But how many of us are willing to tell others about Christ? If we don't have Christ in us, there's nothing to tell. But if Christ is in you, oh, do you have a lot to tell. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this reminder from Christ that there are that there is a great harvest ahead, but there are too few people willing to do it. Now, I pray God this morning as we read about the 12, that these men who went out and radically changed the world and established the kingdom one soul at a time did so to their deaths. And Father, we are so lazy and complacent, we won't even go out our front door and go talk to our neighbor. And we won't even share the gospel with our co-workers. And even our roommates in college don't see Christ in us. Father God, I pray that your word would stir up in each and every one of us here a passion for the gospel, a compassion and a fervor for the lost souls that Jesus had. That's what we read at the end of Matthew chapter 9. He had compassion on them like lost sheep without a shepherd. Father, I pray that you would give us all compassion for those who do not know you. And please allow that compassion to drive us, to motivate us, to cause us to love and to share the word of God with them, to share Christ with them. Forgive us, Father, where we are lazy and cause us to be workers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.